Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have a returning guest and author, Stephen Kotler. Stephen, how are you doing? Greg, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you too. And I'm glad I'm getting a little bit of a smile out of you because I want us to smile all the way through this interview. He has a new book out, The Art of Impossible, uh, and it is the Peak Performance Primer. And Stephen, of all the books you've written, I would say this one was uh, something that any one of my readers would digest, can take in, and actually make some changes in their life with this. Um, This is great. I'm going to let the listeners, those who have not been uh, affiliated or heard any of your podcasts or know anything about you, know just a little bit about you. He's one of the world's leading experts on peak performance. Uh, He's an author of award-winning journalists and and founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. You also can go to that website at flowresearchcollective.com. And you can also find him at stephenkotler.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R. He's written 12 books, including the national bestsellers, The Future is Faster Than You Think, The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire, Abundance, and Bold. His work's been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. You haven't gotten one yet? No, I know. Right? <laughs> it should be. What's going on here? Always a bridesmaid. Yeah. And has been translated in more than 40 languages and appeared in more than 100 publications, including New York Times, Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Wired Time. Uh, he's been on TEDx. Uh, he's also the co-host of a top 10 iTunes science podcast called Flow Research Collective Radio. I'd encourage all my listeners to go there if you want to learn more. And he lives with his wife. We were just talking, Joy. And he says, too many dogs. You can never have too many dogs. Um, In the the mountains of northern Nevada. He says southern uh, Tahoe, for those of you who know anything about that. Well, Stephen, let's just jump right in because... I know you've been doing a lot of these interviews. Um, they all don't go the same, but the reality is, is that, you know, I always prepare for these interviews and I'd love to get all my questions in if I can in the time allotted. You know, you start the book off of speaking about your younger brother and the magic trips that he performed and you're, and you started studying prestidigitation yourself. And this is back in Ohio when you were a young kid. Uh, you learned a major lesson from those years working with magic. And the lesson is actually something that you impart in this book, The Art of Impossible. What were those lessons that you were learning from prestidigitation or magic that you would say are kind of imparted as part of this book? Well, that story was told in a sense because when I actually encountered in my adult life human beings who were accomplishing feats that were quote unquote impossible, things that had never been yeah. done, things we didn't think were ever going to be done, because of my experience in magic, I had a different attitude towards those things. One of the things that magic teaches you is stuff that looks absolutely mind bendingly impossible on the front end, there's always a set of skills underneath it you're never mm-hmm. right you're never looking at the impossible and those skills are learnable or as my uh first mentor magic like to say very little is impossible with 10 years practice yeah um, you know and when, when he was talking about it in, in terms of magic he was 
he's sort of absolutely correct in a sense. Um, but that same idea. So when it started showing up in the real world and all these other domains, I was like, not so fast. Hold on. Wait a minute. I've seen this trick before. Yeah. So that, was, that, that was sort of um, what I learned in magic. And, and certainly um, it's a weird lens in that when you see impossible in magic, like you're seeing, uh, you're actually seeing skill sets like the, the best performers in the world will create tricks and do them. And you can actually learn the same tricks. So right. you end up getting to the point where you're like, okay, I'm sort of doing the exact same thing they were doing and it's producing the same effect, which looked impossible in the front end. And not only is it not impossible on the back end, I can actually, you know, give it enough time and practice, pull some of this stuff off. And even as a kid, that sort of stayed with me. And I think it is about pulling stuff off. You know, I watched uh, an interview with um, Simone Biles last night on CBS and, you know, she's staying in the Olympics, even though it was canceled, but the moves that she's doing as an athlete are just phenomenal. I mean, it's stuff that has not been done by a woman. And especially, you know, you look at somebody who's four foot eight inches tall and what she's doing in gymnastics. And, you know, you've been studying how to optimize human potential. And when you look at somebody like Simone Biles, you go, wow, you know, here's an athlete that is just crazy good at what they do and practice, 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 practice what they do. And your studies are based in neurobiology that state that the personality doesn't scale, but biology does. What do you mean by that statement? Well, so very often, this is, this is sort of one of our watchwords at the Flow Research Collective, which is this idea in, in peak performance, in coaching, in self-help, personal development. Very often what you see is somebody who figures out what works for them and they teach it, try to teach it to other people. And as a general rule, it fails. And it often fails spectacularly. And the reason is this. Peak performance as a general rule is nothing fancier than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That said, <clears throat> um, there are certain ways I would train peak performance that are based on that biology, meaning they're evolutionary systems that evolved millions of years ago and they're common to all humans, all mammals, right? That's what, that's what you're working with there. Several things that influence personality and would massively change how I would train you. Uh, for example, where are you on the risk tolerance to scale? That question is basically determined by genetics and very early childhood experience. And people vary wildly from person to person. Where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale, the openness to experience uh, scale? Uh, these are, again, genetically coded and hardwired in by early childhood experience. It's not that you can't change those things. It's that they're very slow to change. They can take five to 10 years. Um, we used to believe they couldn't be changed at all. Now we know we can change them, but it takes a really long time. Epigenetics, right? Yeah, it, epigenetics. epigenetics over very long periods of time right. can alter, tra alter traits. Um, so when you bump into people who, oh, I figured out what works for me and I've developed a system and I'm teaching other people. Um, whenever I see that, I'm like, oh God, no, um, don't do that. Please don't do that. You're going to make, you're going to make a mess. And this is something, by the way, I learned this the hard way. I made this same mess. Everybody who learns anything about personal development, self-help, 
personal growth, like all this stuff, there comes a period where you go through a period where you just start telling everybody, you know, how to live their lives one way or another, you're trying to do good in the world, but that's what happens. Right. And Hey, um, I've been doing this show for 14 years, but I haven't been telling people I've actually been letting others tell the people. (laughs) So that's the, that's what I mean by that. Right. Like there, the, we, everybody is hardwired for peak performance. So mm-hmm. everybody, everybody can perform some at, at levels so much greater than they're probably used to, but how exactly you approach that is going to very much differ person to person. So you want to get at the underlying neurobiology, the actual mechanism. You want to be a little wary of the psychology, which is often metaphor. Got it. So, you know, in this chapter on motivation decoded, you know, you speak about two drivers. And I've always tell people this, the intrinsic and the extrinsic, and that the intrinsic drivers, which you refer to as curiosity, passion, meaning, and purpose, have become the focus of scientific studies. Speak with the listeners, if you would, about the two drivers and what's been learned about how we can use this information to basically our advantage. You, you spent a lot of time in the book on this, and I think it's extremely important um, relative to uh, the art of impossible and obtaining peak performance. So <clears throat> when scientists use the term motivation, it's a catch-all for a series of skills. There's extrinsic motivation, there's intrinsic motivation, there's goal-setting skills, and there's grit skills. All four of those get lumped under the heading motivation. What you've been talking about is the front end of that equation, which is there are two big sets of motivators that psychologists have discovered on the, on the, there's extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators. Extrinsic motivators are things that are external to us. This is money, sex, or fame, right? Things that are outside of ourselves that we're motivated to try to get. And then there are intrinsic motivators. These are internal motivators. And there are five major ones. You mentioned a couple of them earlier, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Now, there are way more probably than just those big five, but those are the big five. And what the science shows us is if you're interested in peak performance, you got to think about it this way. Motivation is the energy that gets you into the fight, right? You're nowhere if you're not motivated. And so what you want to do, if you really want to perform at your best, is cultivate and align all possible fuel sources, right? You're just on the physical side of the equation by eating right and making sure you have enough sleep and hydration and nutrition and things like that. You also have to stack internal fuel sources. So anyways, what the research shows is that if you're interested in peak performance, if you're interested in motivation, extrinsic motivation actually comes first, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. not a lot of it, right? In the beginning, what the research shows is you got to meet your safety and security needs, right? You have to make enough income in the world that you can pay your bills. You can provide for yourself, your family, if you need to, and have a little bit of money left over for discretionary spending. It doesn't actually have to be a lot. These numbers are much smaller than most people would actually possibly believe. For example, a lot of this core research was Daniel Kahneman's research. He found that for single family households, you're dealing with about $75,000 a year. This is household income. So mm-hmm. enough for mom, dad, and, and, and a child or two with a little left over. Um, once that is taken care of, and this comes, the reason you got to start with extrinsic motivators is simply because when those needs are not met, 
Maslow wasn't wrong. This is sort of the base, the stability of the pyramid. We produce too much anxiety. There's too much. <laughs> what's underneath anxiety, norepinephrine, cortisol, the stress hormones in a sense, they will block so much of the things that we need for peak performance that you can't get past it. So you got to start there. When it comes to internal intrinsic motivators, the research shows there are these five that I mentioned, and they're designed to come on an order. And the way I like to explain it is curiosity is sort of your basic interest in something, right? You get focused for free. That's the big deal. Oh, I'm curious. I don't have to do all this work to pay attention. It happens automatically. Curiosity designed by the, like designed inside our biology to be built into passion in a very specific way. Often what we mean by passion is literally the intersection of multiple curiosities coupled to a bunch of whims in those intersections. Once that happens, once you have, that is the recipe for passion. Once you have passion, passion is designed, passion is an internal fuel that's desired to be coupled to a problem that's sort of greater than ourselves, that's outside of ourselves. So once you have passion, you can couple to a problem that's outside of yourself, that's the seed of purpose. Once you have purpose, the system demands autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose. And of course, once you have that freedom, what do you need next? Mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose well. Once those things are lined up, you go where the book goes next, which is into three tiers of goal setting, which is what the system sort of design needs next. So when I talk about the biology, it's the system of things that are designed to come online sort of in an order and be pointed in the same direction. Well, for people who are probably listening to this show and have read hundreds of books on personal growth and followed anything, the difference between you and many people is the science. You know, you have really looked extremely deep at the science. And I appreciate that because a lot of the other stuff, and I'm not here to demean anybody, is kind of hearsay. It's an experience they had, not an experience that was proved, yet they write a book about it and they say, hey, this is this applies to everybody. And it doesn't. And I and again, thank you for that and thank you for laying it out that way. Um, because it makes so much sense. I do have a question, though. Do you have a definition, or in your mind, a difference between inspiration and motivation? In other words, this is not somatics. This is these are words that are used frequently. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I, motivation. <laughs> motivation. Motivation has a scientific definition. Yes, which is the energy required for action. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Now, and that usually means psychological energy. I don't know how you define inspiration in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I don't quite know what to do with it. Um, and uh, people say my books are inspirational. That's like, so I'm, it's not even that I can dismiss the comment. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know what to do with it because I can't give you any science. I got this word that I don't quite know how I feel about. Well, but from a spiritual standpoint, if you, you go beyond I, yourself, you can I, say, okay, because you got to realize my show does a lot of books on spirituality. Yeah. Too, well. So, I mean, but going beyond yourself. So let's talk about that for half a second, because Purpose is a word that gets tossed around a lot in the community. It's very important these days. And I'm not saying purpose is not spiritually important, right? Like that's not what I'm the claim I'm making at all. I have no comments whatsoever on that side of the equation. But from a peak performance standpoint, two things I can tell you is not only is purpose crucial, it has nothing to do with spirituality. It literally has to do with 
how the brain works. There's certain amounts of reward chemicals that motivate us that show up when, when we're when other people are involved in the equation. Basically, the, the way we evolved was to get a lot of resources for ourselves, and which is passion, right? And once right. passion is on board, the system, our biology, says, okay, well, the whole goal is to perpetuate the species, so now it's time to take care of your family, your tribe, your species, and when you do, I will give you additional reward chemistry. That reward chemistry is what boosts motivation. So it may seem altruistic on the outside, and it is, and it's probably very good for the world, spiritual or not, very good for the world. From a peak performance perspective, it's, it's entirely selfish and necessary, like it's a healthy selfishness in a sense. But from a chemical standpoint, being released in your body is endorphin. Is that right? Well, so, so what, if you get to the so, level of passion, yeah. so passion what is, yeah. what is, what's the correlation of the actual chemical release yes. into so, your body? Passion, curiosity and passion are both about norepinephrine and dopamine, okay. right? Now, curiosity is a little bit of norepinephrine and dopamine. Passion is a ton of norepinephrine and dopamine. Mm -hmm. Once you get other people involved, once you have purpose, it's, you take your passion, it's coupled to a problem that is greater than yourself, two things, two things happen. One, the portion of your prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain that's back here that is normally focused on ego-driven stuff, goal-directed ego-driven stuff, um, shifts. And you, which is useful, very, very useful. This actually helps produce more flow, puts your, helps you put focus on task specific information rather than ego specific information, very useful for driving flow. But more specifically, when other people get involved, you get the three pro social neurochemicals, endorphins, mm -hmm. which is the one you mentioned, serotonin right. and mm -hmm. oxytocin. Okay, great. You know, I think this is all it's so logical. It's so sequential. It's great to have it put this way. Now in your passion and, recipe, hold on one sec. I want to, I want to say one thing, even though I, we, we have thrown everybody who has written all these books about their opinions under the bus. And I, and I didn't throw them under the bus. I just said, I think that there's more research in your, there book. is more <laughs> research that could be done. The thing I want to point out though, is also this, when we talk about this system, quote unquote, this is very recent. Right. Like, in the, I mean, when I say very recent, like it wasn't until the past four or five years that enough neurobiological work had been done. Right. To really like there was great work on focus. There was great work on grit. There's been great work on gratitude. There's been great work on mindfulness. There's been great work on flow. I've done some of this great work. You know what I mean? What hasn't happened because the research is so recent is that people have realized, oh, wow, it's all one thing it's designed to work in an order in the sequence of the system and now so in my opinion now it's sort of inexcusable everything before you can be like okay we, yeah. we literally didn't know now we know that's really and it was in a sense it was news to me the reason i knew first is flow which is the source code of optimal performance optimizes all these various parts in the system and one as a researcher, when, when, when one thing optimizes like all these various parts, you just got to start asking the question, well, what the hell's going on? Why? Why is this happening? What are we looking at? And so I had to sort of learn. Steve? Yep. Thing. Yes, sir. Okay. You faded out for a second, but you're back. Thank oh, God. Oh, I said, uh, what I said it's for okay. a second when I dropped out is nobody else is doing research that I know of that demands they look at the whole big picture. So I. It's 
True. And that's I, what makes this book different is that you did connect the dots. Okay. And uh, kudos to you for connecting those dots, just what you said. And again, it might not have been able to be done because of the research that's been done until the last four years, but at least you did it. And it is got to be now kind of, uh, I don't want to say the Bible, but it needs to be looked at as something people would use. Now you have this I've chapter. Heard, I've heard, I've heard people say that a bunch, which I think <laughs> is an enormous compliment. All I I do what I, but I, what I do hope is that, that what exactly what you said, not whether or not it's the Bible, but like that there's a before and after, right? Yeah. Because I, my, my only point on that is I, when I did this wrong, right? Like when I was training people based on what I thought was going to work for them, mm-hmm. I put a couple people in the hospital, literally like they, I was training people with risk tolerances. They didn't have my risk tolerance, right? I nearly caused a divorce. Mm-hmm. I, Right. There are a couple of friends who still haven't really spoken to me in 20 years. <laughs> right. And this is, and this was like, um, and, and, and I, because the level of damage was so severe, I caught it early. The reason I mentioned it is because if you're doing this kind of damage, you know what I mean? Like the, by sort of the first rule of peak performance has to be like the first rule of medicine, right? Do no harm. Well, you, they were the research dummies. I don't want to say dummies, but in other words, you were doing your research and they decided to go along. So they gave consent to do these things. Um, and it's important. I think sometimes through our mistakes, we realize what it is that we truly need to do. And, totally. and you did. And you have a chapter on, we just talked about the passion recipe. And in this chapter, you state that it's the potent driver. And you go on to reference the psychologists, Edward Dacey and Richard Ryan, who introduced the self-determination theory. Um, I thought this was fascinating because it's not research that I'd ever come across. Um, if you would explain to our listeners about this discovery, because it is important. Well, self-determination theory is the root of intrinsic motivation, right? People have been looking at for years, the thing with motivation was it was a, you either had it or you didn't, right? It, it was a quantity. How much motivation did you have? Not a quality, not what type of motivation you're having. They, um, and a bunch of people were looking at this. And so uh, there was a guy named McClellan who did work into what was known as the achievement motive that has since become uh kind of mastery right and very like they've they've gone through certain evolutions as as we've learned about them but they were the first ones to figure out that hey wait a minute if you're trying to if you're trying to amplify performance especially in the workplace which is where they they were looking um you can't just use these these extrinsic motivators and the carrot and stick kind of systems that come out of these extrinsic motivators meaning you can't just try to motivate employees with big bonuses because it's not going to work, right? Once you get past the safety and security threshold, if you look in companies trying to motivate employees, they fail. Once those thresholds are met, you have to turn to these intrinsic motivators and right um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose tend to be the big three. But purpose is this sort of catch-all term for like curiosity into passion and then passion into purpose. Well, you know, I remember an interview with George Leonard. George Leonard did a whole book on mastery. Sure. And um, 
you know, I sat in his living room and did that interview. And I have to admit at the time, he was pretty cutting edge uh, in comparison to the kind of the rest of the world because of the approach that he took about it. And, and you referenced this full intrinsic stack that we've been talking about. How do these intrinsic motivators do double duty as flow triggers? You mentioned it a minute ago yeah. that they're flow triggers. That's <laughs> so a good um, question. Yeah, it's a good question. Let why me back, are they flow triggers? So let me let's back into this a little bit. Um, all the stuff that's in Art of Impossible is thirty years of research on people who have accomplished capital I impossible, that which has never been done. Now mm-hmm. it's meant to be utilized by anybody who's in. You know, you can, if you're interested in, I want to be better at work on Monday, or you're interested in what I call small I impossible that which we think is impossible for ourselves or capital I impossible, that which has never been done. The tool set is the same, right? There's motivation skills on the front end. This gets us into the gallon. There are learning skills that help us stay there. There are creativity skills that help us steer. And there are flow skills that turbo boost the whole results sort of beyond all expectation. Flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else just seems to disappear. And mm-hmm. all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. And we can talk about what gets amplified and flow. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, we can talk about that later. But the other thing that we have noticed, and this is the answer to your question, we have learned this work has been accumulating since the 60s and 70s, but um, it's really gotten firmed up, I think, over the past 10 years. Flow states have triggers preconditions that lead to more flow. You want more flow in your life. These triggers are your toolkit. There are 22 that we know of. There's probably way more. We just haven't discovered them yet. Flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is on the task at hand and the right here, right now. That's what all the triggers do. We can talk about what the neurobiology is underneath it, but it doesn't matter. The point is that all the triggers drive attention to the present moment. We pay more attention to the task at hand when these triggers are online curiosity drives focus that's what curiosity gives us passion way more focus purpose even more focus than that and then you layer autonomy and mastery on top of it and suddenly you're getting tremendous amounts of focus on the task at hand for free without a lot of energy all of that drives flow wow specifically all of that drives dopamine in and a little bit of norepinephrine but predominantly dopamine to our system which is a major reward chemical, also a major focusing chemical. So Stephen, a lot of my people listening are going to want to know, how do I hack that? You know, the reality is, is that you've just given this not very long list, but a list, and they're trying to get there in either less time or faster or would like to move the needle or they're looking for something. So is there a way... Yeah, so uh, I know this wasn't one of no, the questions fine. I no, said it, it, there. It, it's fine. It's easy. So, um, one, if you send your listeners to www.passionrecipe.com, this, you, I mean, I would advise you to read the book to get the full picture. Right. But how do you turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose is outlined in the passion recipe. It's turned into an interactive worksheet that anybody can use. So that's okay. That's for everybody. We'll put um, that on our blog. And the, and the mo- but the most important point is this. Um, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, how do I hack this? Or, uh, okay, okay, what are the three things I can do Monday morning? Um, 
what I all would like to tell you is you're out of your mind. Like you turn this off. Don't like you're not actually serious about peak performance. Like you're lying to yourself. There are no hacks. There are no shortcuts. There is your biology. You can get your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's all you can do here. And if you come in looking for the shortcuts or what are the three things I can do Monday morning, it doesn't work like that. And um, there in, in the end of Art Impossible, as you know, there are about six things that you need to do every day and about seven things you need to do every week. None of them are very big or very hard. They can be done by anybody, but there's a bunch of onboarding processes, including this passion recipe. And I specifically tell people, take your time with this. Okay. The worst thing for performance is if you spend two years cultivating your passion and devoting yourself to your passion, and then suddenly you're like, oh, it's only a phase. That is so demotivating. That is so, such a tough thing to come back from. It's very, you want to get it right on the front end. In peak performance, we often say there are, this is not a career across the board. The end result of all this stuff is you're going to go farther, faster with far less fuss. So you're going to get your wish, but in a couple of places, you got to go slow to go fast because that's how the system is designed to work. And if you take the time to do it slowly at first, you're going to get the huge results you want. It's just later. So if you're coming and going, how do I hack this? What's the shortcut? That's the worst attitude in the world. You I would agree. Say, there are no shortcuts. How do I do this right? <laughs> I get it right so I don't ever have to do it again. Well, I think, you know, it's like a groove in the road. You ride it enough times and the reality is you don't want to get in the rut, but you do want to create a process. And, you know, I remember a university professor talking about goals. He was on the show. He's like uh, Edward. I can't remember what it was, but he talked about proximal goals a lot. You know, these little interim goals, achievements, the wins that we could get. And he was one of the foremost researchers on goals. And I appreciate your chapter associated with goals because many of my listeners are goal setters, right? So they're going to be out there setting goals. And you state it to understand goals. We need to understand how they impact brain function. And then you went on to lay out that we take in information and we prioritize that data. Can you speak with the listeners because you give supporting data as to why some goals get accomplished and others fail, uh, fall by the wayside, I should say. And I'll look at, we all set goals, right? And a lot of us out there who've listened to my show, it's like, hey, I had goals for the new year. I set them and I've already, let's say people say I've already fallen off from them. I haven't done them. Well, I don't know why people haven't done them. Um, you, <laughs> I know uh, you were probably <laughs> talking to uh, you were probably talking to uh, uh, Edwin Locke. Gary, I was Ed, Gary, Edwin Gary, Locke is who was Gary Lake. Yes. Gary Latham and Edwin Locke are the Godfather yeah. of the goal setting uh, theory. Um, I don't know Edwin very well. I know Gary a little bit. Um, and uh, so what we know is this: first of all. We are goal-directed machines. Human beings are goal-directed machines. We don't actually, in fact, we don't even live in reality. For a bunch of perceptual neurobiological reasons, we live in a world that is essentially sculpted by our fears and our goals. Mm -hmm. That is most of the information that is coming through uh, the system and coming into the brain, et cetera, et cetera. To take advantage of the goal-directedness of the system, what the research shows is, first of all, you want all your intrinsic motivators pointed directly at your goals, right? They all need to be point aligned with your goals. The system seems to demand 
three levels of goal setting. There is mission level goals for your life that you would help establish when you set up your purpose, right? Then underneath that, there's what uh, Edwin uh, Locke was talking about. Proximal goals are high, hard goals is the term they coined. And um, underneath the high, hard goals, the research shows you need clear goals or daily to-do lists that are pointed to your high, hard goals. Your mission level goals are the overarching mission statements for your life. High, hard goals are like the one to five year steps you need to achieve your high, hard goals or your, your mission level goals. And then your daily clear goals, your daily task list need to be pointed directly. They're the steps you need to take today to accomplish your high, hard goals. And they need to all be pointed in the exact same direction. So I would guess if people are coming off the rails here, um, they're doing it for one of a number of reasons. First, they haven't managed to get all their intrinsic motivators pointed in the same direction, and they don't have the three tiers of goal setting um, set up. Two, they probably have uh, made some errors in how they're setting goals. So for example, um, the system demands we set goals that are as clear as possible. Um, vague goals are not useful at all. This is a lot of uh, Latham and Locke's work. Um, you want very clear, high, hard goals. And if you get them right, you will get an 11 to 25% boost in motivation sort of automatically. It's huge. If an eight-hour day is our baseline, it's two hours of free work simply for getting our goals right. And then clear daily goals. These are not the like, I want my boss to like my work or things like that. These are things we can control. This is if I'm writing a book, I'm going to write 500 words today in my new book and, um, you know, advance my chapter five, 500 words. And when I'm done with those 500 words, uh, they're going to try to make the reader feel excitement or joy or confusion or whatever goal I'm aiming for that very clear action plan statement. I will also say that people make one sort of critical error with peak performance. I say this in the book, it's worth, wrenching out loud. When you write a daily to-do list, the first order of business with peak performance is if you make a promise to yourself, put something on your to-do list, that's a promise to yourself that you're going to do it during the day. And you have to keep your word to yourself. It's the most important. Peak performance demands it. If it goes on the task list, you said you're going to get it done, you get it done. And it's not an option. Um, and if you start to think about things in those ways, right, it's like in some relationships and marriages, they often say, take divorce off the table, right? Just take it off the table as an option um, in trying to problem solve because um, it creates too many other problems. I'm not saying that's always the solution, but that's one way to think about it. I think about that. If it goes on the clear goals list, my day is not done until it's done. Every now and again, I set a list that, that, that it was too ambitious for the day. Maybe I'll boot something the next day. But that happens so infrequently. Wow. Well, that says a lot about you and, and the research you've done and your ability to organize and prioritize, you know. Mm. And yeah, Greg, actually, one other thing I want to tell people, because this is, this is a hack or a trip tip. And most people, um, especially in the self-help, personal development space, get this wrong and it's not their fault. Um, this was actually Gary Latham and John Locke. When they originally did their research, they believed that we should publicize our goals. We should talk about them with other people. And so often pe times people are given advice. And you see this a lot in this, this world. Make your goals public. Tell your friends. Tell everyone. Right. Right. Lash yourself to the master public opinion. <laughs> yeah. And it, right, this, like, and it turns out it's terrible advice awful advice neurobiologically when we talk about our goals before they've been accomplished 
um, out loud, the system gets really excited and it starts releasing dopamine. That's the very energy that you're supposed to be hoarding to be released when you need to go after the goals. So what the, and this is new research past 10 years, but it's very, very clear. Um, keep them to yourself. And this is a big deal, big, big deal. Very, very difficult for uh, younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, because they like to go into meetings saying, my name is so-and-so, this is my mission. This is what I'm about. They state their goals publicly all the time. And it's a, very, it's a cultural thing. It's part of, um, it's very generational. Um, doesn't seem that Gen Xers do it as much. Um, it's a disaster. I don't, it's a disaster neurobiologically. I would agree. I mean, I've never time. done it, but I've known people that so have that advocated is, it. They've advocated that that's what I should do if I want to achieve them. And I've felt so much more private about my goals because they're my goals. Um, I don't know if that's the right position well, to take, but I 100% agree with the here's, science. <laughs> here's, and here's the other thing I will say, because I believe this is true. And I've had this conversation with tons of other like top leaders in their field, right? Mm-hmm. Just top leaders. And one of the things that we talk about is if I'm in a conversation with you mm-hmm. and you, you say, hi, my name is Sarah and my mission is whatever. The first thing I think is, well, you obviously haven't accomplished your mission yet. Otherwise, I would already know about it. <laughs> I think when you tell me what you're, you're lying, right? Because right, right. every peak performer I know, every successful person I know, I'm measured by execution. What have you done in the world? Not what you say. In fact, I will judge you if you say one thing and I later find out that that is just talk and you haven't done any of those things in the world. We'll never work together again, ever. Like, forget about it. And most of the top performers I know, most super successful people I know, feel the exact same. Good point. And I think that if the people are listening to this uh, at this point, you, you've just gotten a gem of information that you need to take into account. Now, let's talk about grit for a minute. You ask the reader to think of it as an intrinsic motivation. It launches you down the path of peak performance. Um, we obviously know that Angela Duckworth is kind of a de facto. I don't know if she's a de facto, but she wrote the book Grit. Yeah, Angela is still great. on. I don't know anybody who's doing more hard work on grit. I think yeah. And she defines grit as the intersection of passion and perseverance. Speak with us what you would about the neuroscience that we've learned about grit, because grit is in the formula. You know, it's it's there. Yeah. So um, there's a handful of things that are important, um, some of which uh, don't show up in Angela's research, um, because her research, I think, is very focused on this one characteristic. So a couple of things. Um, I don't, a lot of people, grit is essentially, um, it's what you need when the passion runs out. That's why she sort of defines it as the intersection of passion and perseverance. It's in our, in, in, in our work, the couple of things that, that you want to build on top of that is, is twofold. One is you don't want to start working on grit until you can sort of get all the motivators pointing in the same direction and um, have your proper goal setting. Because it's really hard and it can be very demotivating for people. So it's hard work to do. The good news, here's the crazy news, good news. Everybody can, we're we're hardwired for grit. We are capable of so much more grit than we possibly, possibly know. You only get there by training it. And the research shows there's actually six different kinds of grit. 
And at least, especially in the beginning, you need to train them sort of independently. Um, there's the steadfast perseverance that we all know about, like the, I'm just going to keep doing the work no matter what. Right. There's thought control, the grit to manage your thoughts, um, totally separate type of grit because it requires different kinds of training. There's the grit to be your best when you're at your worst. That actually needs to be trained independently. There's the grit to go after your weaknesses. And finally, on the back end, this is not normally talked about as a grit skill, but in our work, we train it as a grit skill. Oh, excuse me. There's, a, there's another grit, which is the grit to go at master fear. And finally, the last one is the grit to recover. And most people don't think of recovery. And I'm talking about active recovery protocols right. like Epsom salt baths, long saunas, restorative yoga, massages, walks in nature, mindfulness, practices that, that shift state and put energy back into the system. Um, we train as a grit skill because, as you know, with top performers, they don't ever want to shut it down. They want to keep working, keep working, keep working, keep working, keep right. working, which is a recipe for burnout. And so we train peak perform, we train recovery as a grit skill when we train peak performers, because for most peak performers, it is a grit skill. It is fascinating. And I love that you mentioned those various elements of grit mastery. Um, you know, you, you speak about uh, your chapter on habit of veracity. You speak about your good friend and co-author of many of your books, uh, Peter Diamandis, and his X Prize for someone who could launch a reusable spaceship of which uh, no one could thought could be done. Uh, but you speak about this endeavor and the man who made it happen. And I think, you know, when you say the art of impossible, I was watching 60 Minutes last night and I was watching Bill Gates and he was talking about, you know, the catastrophe in his new book that's coming out and so on. And, you know, everything has to be redone and reinvented um, for us to change the CO2 level emissions and actually change our planet as we see it. And obviously, there's a bunch of very wealthy men who have breakthrough technologies, which is one of the companies that's been formed, who are trying to solve all these problems, right? Um, this guy solved the problem of a reusable spaceship, and I thought it was a spacecraft, I should say. Pretty fascinating story. Can you tell that story and then comment on many of the people's missions when we say art of impossible? There's There's stuff out there going on that just it's blowing my mind. What's, I mean, obviously you've written books about it, about the technology and advancements that are being made and the speed at which we're moving. How would you encapsulate all of this and tell our listeners, hey, look, uh, we're on a new horizon here. There's lots that you guys can do. Um, the art of impossible is not, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, Greg, I don't have a simple answer for that because um, the habit of ferocity, which is what's where we started, is something very, very different from the, the current question. I mean, the right answer to the answer to the current question is whenever you see the impossible become possible, big picture, right? Mm -hmm. You tend to see two things. You see people extending human capability and people harnessing disruptive technology. Mm. The Art of Impossible is a book about how do you extend human capability, right? right. It's this is the totally. biology of all of it. The last book I wrote before it, which I think is the last time we got a chance to talk, right? Yeah. Which is the future is faster than you think, is the other half of this equation, right? The point is that we're ha we have there's more 
individual lines of accelerating disruptive technology with user-friendly interfaces. So the craziest technology in the history of the world, the most sci-fi technology in the history of the world, most powerful technology in the history of the world, because it's got a user-friendly interface and they, these technologies have been democratized and demonetized, meaning they're cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and they're wider and they're wider and they're user-friendly interface and you can freaking use them. And the example I like to give about this one is like 3D printing is this crazy whiz-bang technology that, you know, additive manufacturing helps us completely reinvent supply chains, helps us completely reinvent business. And the story I like to tell is about nine-year-old Adam Robinson, who was born without a left arm. He went to a summer camp in San Francisco, learned how to use a 3D printer, teamed up with a guy, went home in a week, printed himself a bionic arm. Bionic arm, he practices violin with this arm. I mean, like, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, this yeah, is a nine-year-old. Yeah. That's a great um, story. And I mean, and there, the examples are on, and I'll give you another example that is just about as crazy to me. This is maybe even crazy. So quantum computing is the most sci-fi misunderstood technology in the history of the universe, right? Yeah. It's so whiz-bag. It's insane. And yet, you go to Rigetti Computing dot com rigetti.com anybody can go to this website this is rigetti computing they're a quantum computing company in berkeley they've got one of the world's largest quantum computers it's online there's a 32 quibit quantum computer online you can download forest which is their quantum developers app their open api um for free and you can run programs on their quantum computer for free and when we were writing faster so you're talking about a year and a half ago already maybe two years ago already at that point, a million and a half programs had been run. So a million and a half people had gone out and run programs on a quantum computer. And these are people who knew nothing about quantum computing because there's now a user-friendly interface to the quantum world. So all this is available to anyone. The door's been opened. The door's we been have, opened. We have the technology. We have the human capability blueprint. And now we literally do have the blueprint, right? So in my opinion... Um, the ball is in, in everybody listening to this, the ball is in our court, right? Like yeah. there, there is, there is, I'm not saying the system is perfect. I'm not saying, you know, there aren't massive difficulties for everybody everywhere and challenges, but you have never been more empowered in the history of the world than you are right here, right now. Most definitely. I mean, it's, we, this is the most phenomenal opportune time in history we've ever been, regardless of the pandemic, regardless of any of the other stuff that's going on. Uh, there is so much opportunity uh, to make a difference in the world, a positive difference for change. I'll give you, I was looking at it this morning, just one, solar's exploding. Here's an exponential technology that's going yeah. uh, We've been in our new house a couple of years and I, I talked to my wife, I was like, okay, been here, we paid some bills, let's, let's look at solar. And it turns out that Every solar company in Nevada, like there are articles, but she sent me a bunch of articles. Solar is having a record year, post-COVID record year. Here's an exponential technology spreading at ridiculous rates. And in the middle of a pandemic, every solar company in America is having a record year. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, even in the mountains there where you live or wherever you are in uh, northern Nevada, um, you know, you have an opportunity to harness that power almost anywhere, regardless, and and then save it in batteries if that's what you choose to do. Now, you know, you speak about five not so easy step process for learning just about anything. I thought this 
would, would be really good for our listeners and for me. Can you speak about our listeners about these steps and what we can learn by the time we complete your process? Because you outline it toward the back of the book. It's like all the way toward the end. But, you know, if we, everybody here on this show has got to be a continual learner because they're yeah. wanting to constantly improve themselves. And I thought your steps were very well laid out. So take whatever time you want, and then we're going to go into talking about zero to dangerous, your course. So um, I don't have the time to break it down uh, completely because it's a big process, but here's what I want. So one, uh, the stuff you're talking about, there's a learning section, right? It's the second section right. in the book. Right. And um, there's two, uh, there's, learning is a bunch of skill sets, right? There's meta skills that surround learning. What source material do you learn from? What are your truth filters? How do you evaluate the learning quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a process for skill acquisition and a process for knowledge acquisition. This is the process for knowledge acquisition. And it was, it's, it's, it's the, one of the only things in the book, everything in the book is totally based in science. This is the one of the two places where I deviate. This is the system I developed over 30 years as a journalist where I would have to get to levels of expertise on a subject very, very quickly. And when I say I would have to, magazines have fact-checking departments. Fact-checkers, they have one job in their mind, which is to prove the journalists wrong. Mm -hmm. They get bonus points when I'm wrong. So they go out of their way to be as ruthless as possible. And if I want to keep working, I have to keep them happy, right? Which means I can't get anything wrong. So I developed a process over a, a long period of time that allowed me to basically train myself up to, you know, semi-expert level very, very quickly in very, very complicated subjects. And there are five not so easy steps for learning anything. It starts off with a, a process for how do you read, for learning how to read. Um, and that sounds kind of weird. It starts off with what I call the five books of stupid which is an onboarding process that teaches you sort of how to read the, the first five books you need to kind of get yourself trained up in a subject before you can start talking to experts and asking them questions. There's an order of the process. The whole point in the whole thing is most people don't learn how to read properly. They're, they're meaning for an actual knowledge acquisition. They were taught to read in school before we really understood how the brain learns and how it works. And Chances are you learned a system that is not optimized for your biology and that you can make it a whole lot easier on yourself um, to get to expertise faster. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't sort of work the way most people think it works. I can go in, into detail at all, at, at any of the different steps, but. I think we could just let the listeners yeah, know I, that I, in I, there, there's a bonus. I call this a bonus because it was your experience that you've actually imparted in the book about a process you've perfected that I would tell my listeners, if you followed this or read it and followed it, you would become uh, much more better at, or I should say, you would become, you would improve your performance uh, at your learning skills. The only, and, the only thing I will tell you on that one, and I don't, again, personality doesn't scale, biology scales. That said, I will tell you, I'm not a super smart guy. I'm just like everybody else, pretty much. And I have mastered a good dozen subjects, maybe more. 
and all of which are on display in my books, right? The level of mastery yeah. and what, like, go take a look. And I didn't start out any different than anybody else, right? And I mean, in a sense, I read more books than other people in a specific way, but really like this is really because what we now understand about the neurobiology of learning and how it works in the brain, um, anybody can really do this and get a lot farther than they probably anticipate. Well, it's, you know, look, I think it's a bonus. People can read this book for whatever they want to read it for, but that part to me was a bonus. Now, once people understand the fundamentals of peak performance by reading the book, you state the next step might be for them to harness those fundamentals. Could you tell them a little bit about your zero to dangerous program? Um, obviously, this is, you know, we're kind of wrapping up our interview here, but this is the, I think, the creme de la creme for people who are in, really interested in digging deeper. Uh, we're going to put a link to stephencotler.com, and we're also going to put a link to them being able to uh, uh, jump into your program. So at the Flow Research Collective, we're a research and training organization. Um, you pointed out we sort of train everybody from the U.S. Special Forces through Olympic athletes, through Fortune 500 CEOs and C-suite executives, to like insurance brokers from Indiana and soccer moms from Iowa. We, mm -hmm. take, we train about 1,000 people a month. Um, I think in total I've trained about a quarter million people, all told. Um, uh, though I don't, uh, I didn't do the counting on that number. Somebody on my staff came up with that number. I thought that number was the most outrageous thing in the world, but apparently it's somewhat true. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I, and and on the research side, you know, as you mentioned, we're we're a research organization as well. We work with kind of neuroscientists. We have a bunch of neuroscientists, psychologists who are on staff, and we team up with people at USC, UCLA, Stanford, Imperial College London. Right to study the neurobiology of peak performance. We take everything that we we know, and it goes into this training, zero to dangerous. This is our foundational flow training. Right, flow is this one of the major secrets to optimal performance, and this uh, this training is focused on flow. Most specifically, it's focused mostly in the stuff we were talking about. It's a bunch of the motivation into motivation, goals, grit, and flow stuff. It's that portion of the equation. There's there's more stuff that can go on later, but Give you an average, an idea. We, is it an asynchronistic training that you no, virtually put eight, in? It's an eight-week-long training. Um, okay, meant to be taken in a specific order, and you go through it. It's a digital training, but you go through with a PhD psychologist or PhD neuroscientist as your coach. Okay. So if you have a live, you have a coach who works with you on it. Um, they meet with you. They're a PhD, and we measure flow pre and post. And on average, we get about a seventy percent boost in flow on the back end. Um, which is uh, incredible. And I, like, I'd like to tell you it's because our voodoo is super good, and maybe it is, right? <laughs> it's but your really, research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is what happens when you get your biology working for right. you rather than against you. This is what I mean by the system is designed to go faster, farther, with far less fuss to get it working the way it's supposed to work. Well, Stephen, we're definitely going to put up a link to that. We will put up a link to your personal website as well and a link for people to join you in that zero to dangerous program. Um, you know, you have laid out uh, a lot of things. If there were two or three things you'd want to leave the listeners with today, just as parting, is there anything in particular you'd like for them to take away from the book, take away from the course, take away from anything they could do? Well, I'm going to get, I'm going to stay big picture rather than go yeah. down to individual stuff. 
But this is what I like. I, if there's a handful of like, what did I learn in 30 years of studying the best of the best in every domain imaginable? Right. Two, two things stick out more than most. The first is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. The second is human potential is invisible, and especially to ourselves. We can only find out what we're capable of by pushing on our skills to the utmost again and again and again in a very specific way. It's totally doable by anybody. But if we do this again and again and again, that's how we find out what we're actually capable of. Human capability is an emergent property. So whatever it is that you think you can go after, I would turn that up a couple of notches because it's probably bigger than you're thinking. Push your limits uh, and look at these uh, curiosity, passion, purpose, meaning. Those are very important. He's given you the tools. So I'm telling my listeners right now, the tools are in this book. It's the application of those tools. And he also said there's no shortcuts. So let's not get like we're going to hack this because you're not. Stephen, thanks so much for being on Inside Personal Growth again. I owe you a debt of gratitude. It's always awesome having you on and speaking with my listeners. They love these interviews. They get lots of plays. So thanks so much. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate you.